This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Amanda Rogers, and we're discussing Tom Metzger. So as most of you know, we have been working on a series discussing some of the key influencers and influences on the contemporary white supremacy, white power, white nationalist movement, whatever you want to call it. So we did a show on James Mason with our good friend J.M. Berger. We're editing a show on QAnon and the Christian identity movement that we recorded with Matt Taylor. And today we're going to discuss Tom Metzger. So the reason we, we picked Tom Metzger was because of, I think one of them was the writing that Amanda has done for and we'll post a link to it, but it was very compelling, this idea of an infiltration strategy of this modern kind of, you know, targeting the security services in order to kind of spread white supremacy or create a power base for white supremacy. And when I started talking to people, a lot of them said that Tom Metzger is not really well known, right? So, you know, he's a little less well known when compared to Lewis Beam, when compared to James Mason. And we said, by God, we got to do a show on this, which I don't, I don't know why I'm so enthusiastic. But with that, like, please welcome Amanda. Hi, Amanda. How's it going? Hello. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm really thrilled that you guys had me on. You've had a lot of stellar colleagues as guests before, so I'm really honored to be here. Awesome. Um, and anytime I can spout off about Tom Metzger, I'm more than happy to do so. So let's just, let's dig in. Awesome. So let's, I mean, let's just start with a basic question of who is Tom Metzger. Like when, when I just read his biography, I kind of found him kind of very interesting because he, he doesn't stick to one movement. He's kind of moving around and he's kind of, you know, doesn't come into the movement until later in life. Like who, who is he? Like who, give us like a kind of a life story. He's a really, really interesting character uh, or was a really interesting character. He died um, shortly before the election in 2020 but he was active in the white supremacist movement for a good 50 years. He initially, you know, he followed a a standard sort of trajectory that a lot of these um, white power figures do in that he initially went to the John Birch Society in, in this patriotic sort of fervor and worry about communist influence. And as far as I can tell from what I'm piecing together, because I'm writing a book on, on this now, this is about the time when his obsession and a lot of the obsession across the greater, I mean, people call it far right, but I don't think that that's necessarily the best um, descriptor for the movement, quote unquote. This fear of infiltration by communists starts to become really, really prevalent. And a lot of the people that would go on to become key leadership figures initially got involved with um, racist activism through the John Birch Society. And John Birch was absolutely obsessed with communists infiltrating the American government at every level. So that is uh, Metzger's first sort of step on on the pathway, I guess you could say, to what he became. He quickly, as many, many other movement leaders did, became disenchanted with JBS because he saw them as tackling 
problems that were in fact at root caused by, you know, the Jews and reticent to name the problem directly, right? And this is again, an issue that a lot of leadership within and across the movement have had with John Birch Society and, and other organizations. So he left the John Birch Society and um, was toying with starting his own organizations that really didn't go anywhere. And then he got involved with David Duke and Duke's Knights of the, the KKK. And he formally joined the KKK in 1975. He ended up having a falling out with David Duke that resulted in a split between them. And by 1980, they really had absolutely no association anymore at that point. And then in 1982, Metzger forms an association. I can't remember the precise name, but it's the White American Political, I, I want to say association. I, it could be organization. But in, in any case, this was an electoral sort of program that was meant to funnel activist support and resources to pro-white, quote unquote, candidates. And this coincides with basically a, a broader a broader phenomenon within the movement, the organized white supremacy movement, that is, that's a turn towards anti-government sentiment and is a, a turn towards a more, I guess you could say, in, an insurgency sort of model. So this is about the time when you get the 1983 founding of the order or the, the Silent Brotherhood is the other name that it, it goes by. So you start to have a, a revolutionary turn in the white power movement. Kathleen Ballou's book talks about this. Um, as having a lot to do with the aftermath of the Vietnam War. And I think to an extent that's definitely true. But in any case, Metzger ends up changing the name of his organization first to the White American Resistance. And then subsequently around 1983, he changes the name to White Aryan Resistance, the acronym WAR. And this is the group that becomes very closely associated with the rise of, of skinheads, as people called them the shock troops in the 1980s of the, the white power movement. But so that was Metzger's sort of organizational trajectory until he got embroiled in a lawsuit over a beating death of an Ethiopian immigrant in Portland, Oregon, and wound up getting sued in a civil case by a Southern Poverty Law Center. And essentially, war as an organization, and I hesitate to even call it an organization because Metzger deliberately set it up in a way that, that rendered membership ties, you know, unimportant and negligible and really non-existent for um, this particular grouping. So he could potentially avoid legal culpability for things that were done on behalf of the organization. And of course, civil trials have a lower evidentiary sort of standard of proof than criminal trials do. So long story short, he ends up getting convicted or getting losing the case against him in 1990, I believe, the civil case. And this bankrupts the organization of war. And after that, Metzger is sort of a free agent in many ways. I mean, he's still running an organization that goes by the White Aryan Resistance. But it's not the same sort of financial machine, even though I wouldn't really call it a machine because it wasn't particularly lucrative that he was back then. And so basically, Metzger had gone in and out of different movement groups and ideological sort of configurations. Shortly after he joined Duke's KKK, he became ordained as a Christian identity minister. And then later along his trajectory, he ends up uh, becoming an atheist. And then there's talk of him being an Odinist, but, you know, I, 
I am skeptical of those claims because the majority of sentiments that I have seen him express in, in interviews and in all of his writing is basically the idea of race being his religion. So yeah, he had passed through several different iterations of the movement. But one thing that I want to touch on is I think that it's it's kind of generational uh, mistake to see Metzger as less prominent or less well-known than a figure like James Mason. I mean, James Mason now for this generation is, is very well-known because of groups like Adam Wappen, for example, but that was not always the case in the movement. And for many decades, Tom Metzger was, was very much the face of the American white supremacist movement. Now, after the civil loss, many observers, especially academics and especially, you know, advocacy groups saw the bankruptcy of war as an organization as the end of Metzger as an influential figure. And I absolutely will argue that this was an incredibly, incredibly grave mistake he definitely still operated. So I, th I think that's sort of a, a quick overview into who he was and the trajectory that he took in, you know, over 50 years of being active in this movement. And I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I wanted to touch on about that as far as in and out. What I, what I would say is that for the contemporary generation, if they are aware of, and I don't mean the contemporary generation of, of people in the movement, but the public at large, if, if you know, Gen Z... And millennials are aware of Tom Metzger at all. It's typically in conjunction with Louis Thoreau's documentary about the white power movement in which Metzger is kind of depicted as like a, a clown and, and, you know, really has been for you know, the generations above mine. Metzger is, is best remembered by the public as the guy that was associated with the skinheads and the guy that brought skinheads onto the Geraldo show and a melee broke out in which some of them broke his nose. So yeah, I think part of the idea of, of knowing who Metzger was and, and which particular segments of the public do and don't has a lot to do with the generations that we're talking about. So then, you know, before, you know, how do, how do we sort of conceptualize his influence then? If he is you know, 50 years in the movement, he's going from the Klan to skinheads to Christian identity. You know, how do we draw a circle around his influence and say, you know, this is this is Metzger's out, output and this is his kind of weight on the movement? Well, that's an excellent question. And it's also at the simultaneously very easy and very, very complicated to quote from Metzger himself, his approach to white supremacist politics is use what works. And this makes him, I think, a really interesting and rather unique figure in movement circles, precisely because of the fact that he never, he never shied away necessarily from movements and ideological formations that he'd been a part of. He basically owned it, you know, and said that he had moved past particular moments in time that he had had different awakenings and so on and so forth, but there's not kind of the, the impetus that you would expect among a lot of these figures, which let's be real, the egos are out of control in the white supremacist movement to basically shit all over previous configurations and associations, right? Metzger by and large didn't really do that so much with the exception of David Duke. You know, he, he didn't, he owned basically what, what he was a part of. So on the one hand, conceptualizing Metzger's legacy is very simple if we use 
his own words and his own approach to do so, which is use what works. And that's why he dabbled in several different, you know, group formations and, and types of outreach. And that's one way to handle it. But then there's also the, the way to handle it. Billy Roper, which I'm not, I'm not certain if, if you're familiar with Billy Roper or not, but Billy Roper was, a, is the coordinator of Shield Wall Network. And Billy Roper came from a white supremacist family. I believe his father and grandfather were important figures in the Klan. But in any case, Roper was mentored by Pierce of the National Alliance. And what's particularly interesting about this is shortly after Metzger died, Billy Roper dedicated an entire um, episode of, of a podcast that, that he runs to a Metzger sort of eulogy obituary. And he talked at length about the fact that within the contemporary movement today and the younger generations, Metzger gets almost no credit for all of the different innovations that he came up with and implemented, you know, 30 years ago, like balkanization as a strategy, abandoning the idea of the Northwest territorial imperative as viable in terms of, you know, immigration or immigration, I guess you would say relocation, you know, to change the demographics and then and start an ethnostate through that particular method. Roper also credits him, you know, with things far beyond the lone wolf, which is really how people today uh, remember Metzger, if at all. And, you know, he it's really bizarre that he's not better known because so many of the features that we see in the white supremacist movement now owe to innovations that Metzger came up with and implemented decades ago. The emphasis on a youth movement, for one, the emphasis on hybrid models of having above board organizations that also had sort of quasi paramilitaries working underground is something that was also, you know, key to him. The internet, again, was huge as far as Metzger was concerned, particularly for transnational mobilization. It's another thing that people really don't think of and should have in terms of crediting, and I don't mean crediting obviously in a positive way, I mean in terms of crediting a source so that we can better understand and break down the trajectories of this ideological spread. So Lewis Beam and Metzger were two of the first, along with George Dietz, to start BBS internet, you know, online sort of outreach programs in the early 1980s. So already by the 1980s, Metzger was building, you know, Canadian branches of his organization. He was sending skinheads to Sweden to build, you know, the Swedish franchise, basically, of war. So transnational mobilization was a big thing that he was involved in. Mobilizing the youth is a huge thing he was involved in. Aspects of infiltration, which I'm happy to go into at length, he was involved in. Also, he was one of the first... And I, I don't see this recognized nearly anywhere, and I really think that it needs to be, but Metzger was a pioneer of media exploitation and manipulation and the role of strategic communications in a, a militant struggle. I don't want to necessarily say military struggle, but what I mean by that is he was one of the first to weaponize the First Amendment in terms of racist propaganda. He had his own cable access show called Race and Reason for, I want to say, about a decade, where he would invite on other ideologues and racist leaders and debate them, you know, expose their views to whoever was watching. And the purpose, like everything that Metzger did, wasn't as straightforward, just get a platform for um, our views to be heard. 
it was very, very complex and multifaceted. So what I mean by that is Metzger would have his acolytes call into local stations and local affiliates and lodge complaints about race and reason being aired. And why would he do this and orchestrate complaints against his own you know, television show to drum up a First Amendment controversy and gain media attention that way? He was very adept at that. He was very adept also at, you know, going on on shows like Oprah and Geraldo and gaining mainstream attention that way, not necessarily seeking mainstream credibility, but enhancing the the pool of potential recruits and sympathizers. So he was he was I don't like using this word, but it's apt when we talk about Metzger. He was brilliant in a lot of ways. Another innovation that he was particularly important to was this idea that the majority of of white people are lost and that only a revolutionary approach will wake up some of the population to accomplish what needs to be done in this particular ideological schema. And in parallel to, you know, the way that James Mason talks about it. And just a quick point on James Mason in relation to this, James Mason actually was pretty marginal in the movement for quite some time. And Tom Metzger was one of the only people that kept his influence out there. He published Mason in uh, the pages of war. And I'm sure that you've heard this whole idea that the meme of Reed Siege started on 4chan or Iron March or whatever, and that Reed Siege was, you know, a slogan that went along with the development of, of Adam Waffen. But what's really interesting to me, I came across um, an interview that Metzger gave in 1992, I want to say, on the John McLaughlin show on CNBC, and he holds up a copy of Siege. And says read siege, you know, and really kicks off what we see now being championed as a slogan that's that's particular to Adam Waffen, which isn't the case. I mean, when Adam Waffen was trying to hunt down James Mason and get a hold of him, Brandon Russell reached out initially to Tom Metzger. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is Metzger had channels of communication and promotion of, of Mason's work, you know. Back in 1985, Metzger and Mason had been in contact for over a decade. They'd considered themselves friends and interlocutors. And Metzger had this, he had a, a trailer on his property in Fallbrook or outside Fallbrook, California, that he called Matthews Hall after Bob Matthews, the founder of the order. And this is where he would have recruits and skinheads and, you know, whoever in the movement come to listen to speeches, sometimes over the phone, sometimes in person. And in 1985, he hosted James Mason there for a talk at Matthews Hall over the phone. So there is a connection between Mason and Metzger that goes back far, far, far beyond what's been publicly acknowledged. And in many ways, Metzger is responsible for keeping Mason in the public eye in terms of the, the public eye of the, the white power movement. So <laughs> that's a lot. It's okay. Something that, that you said that it's kind of just blowing my mind is how in tune Metzger was with modern media. Like you, well, you mentioned- actually, you, you want me to, to go on one of those tangents I told you about? I mean, like you just mentioned that he was on the Mo- McLaughlin group, which oh, is- Oh yeah, he was on the McLaughlin group. He was on Geraldo. He was on Oprah. <laughs> 
And here's the thing that I think <laughs> no one has recognized about Tom Metzger. One of the many things when Metzger was a, a child, he had an aptitude for uh, communications technology. He started um, basically making ham radio stations and running them when he was like 13 years old. Now, when people talk about what he did in his day job, he ran a TV repair um, shop for most of his life. And people, you know, kind of mock that in many ways. And incidentally, that sort of lower skilled per, in terms of perception here, I, I don't want to come across like I'm, you know, deriding the, the profession or whatever, but the trades were something that he really pushed as far as having a viable career path to support activism. And he happened to be in television repair his whole life, but his interest in communications goes back further to the point where he was, you know, 13, 12, something around this time. And he was building radios. Why am I saying this is even significant? Well, it overlaps with a period of American foreign involvement in wars in which members of the public were asked to basically scan the radio for, I can't remember the, the specifics, I think this was World War II, for communications, hostile communications from the enemy. And Metzger was one of the youngest people that was selected to serve in this capacity as a volunteer. Now, moving forward throughout his life, you see a very, very precocious use of the media in connection to military conflict and political affairs that I don't think anyone's recognized to date. And I would also add to that, that during Metzger's time in the service, because he was in the U.S. Army, he was in charge of, of signals intelligence to a certain extent, I think, and also communications technology while deployed in Germany. So the threat of media and communications in, in conflict and political power is a theme that throughout his entire life. And I also think that it's something incredibly important for understanding his approach to the field of infiltration as far as the need to be um, covert and the need to have uh, essentially above ground deflection, which he very much did through a personality that was bombastic and that you know, he was happy to have people write him off and underestimate him as, you know, this lunatic that was just incredibly inflammatory. But like I was saying before, you know, he, he didn't do a straightforward sort of a strategic program. There were many, many levers at play. So Metzger, for example, taking his skinheads onto Geraldo, he was dressed in a suit and tie along with his son, very clean cut, speaking, you know, rational, logical arguments about demographic shift and immigration. And he got to play himself off of these unruly skinheads that looked like thugs that were beating the shit out of people, you know, and involved in violent crimes. So he was very adept at exploiting media platforms and uh, media channels since he was a child. So in his exploitation of media, was it was it successful? Was he able to sort of broaden the base of the movement or absolutely. was it? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, the Geraldo episode where, you know, some skinheads broke Geraldo's nose. He talked about this a lot later in his life about how that was one of the, the, the biggest rushes for recruitment that they'd had. He also had like, he's one of the pioneers of the, the telephone hate lines, numbers that people could call. And incidentally, I think this is one of one of his acts of, of genius sort of for getting buy-in um, and participation for uh, the youth generation that he was really targeting. 
in the sense that you had some young skinheads volunteering to man these these hate lines, they would leave messages, you know, and updates and whatever. And they would also, when a crime was committed, you know, like the beating of a a black man, for example, or the murder of a Hispanic man, you know, basically there would be shout outs on these hate line messages that people could call. So the skinheads involved in these acts saw what they were doing being publicized by Metzger in the pages of his publications and in his, you know, telephone messages. And they saw that as a sort of uh, incentive, basically, in publicity, but also, I guess you could say, encouragement, they were doing the right thing. In terms of mainstream media, absolutely, he was successful. And I think that, you know, there's no way in hell we would have had a Richard Spencer being trotted out all over mainstream media if we didn't have someone like Tom Metzger, who had pioneered the use of being inflammatory and getting the attention of the mainstream media that we know runs on sensationalist profit motives. That's really interesting. Like you drawing that line from Metzger to Spencer, the idea of, of media exploitation and kind of using the media, you know, against itself, or I, I oh, don't yeah. know if against itself is the accurate description, but that's, that's really fascinating. But or as it's, as it's set up to function, right? Because if it bleeds, it leads. And I think that, you know, the, the reason there's so much interest in, say, a Richard Spencer type is he goes against the stereotype of what people think a white supremacist looks like. And, you know, that's something that, that Metzger absolutely played with when he was host, when he was on the Geraldo show and Oprah and all of these other programs with skinheads, right? So playing with the idea of what does this look like, right? Yeah, I mean, one of his first media sort of campaigns, incidentally, has to do, in my opinion, with really the beginnings of his infiltration program. Actually, there are two incidents. The first one is it occurred in about 1976, I want to say. Metzger talked David Duke into, this is actually just as a footnote here for you, This is another area in which Metzger's influence is not recognized the way that it should be. Metzger was one of the first to really push the southern border, you know, influx of illegal immigrants and demographic time bombs coming across the southern border. So he convinced David Duke to do a volunteer border patrol that was staffed by Klan members in 76. And one of the fascinating things about this is that Metzger arranged for, I don't know how the hell they managed to do this, but, you know, David Duke was always about the photo op. Metzger was the mastermind behind these events. But so they landed in a helicopter on top of an immigration naturalization service building, you know, to media waiting for them. They got a guided tour through INS and border patrol facilities and yeah, launched a a clan border watch for a while. And incidentally, I actually found an affidavit that Metzger gave in which he talks about having infiltrated the Border Patrol and INS and having Klan members inside of those organizations. So, you know, you can see already that there's there's an interest, even in his earliest days with the Klan, of staging photo ops and publicity events, right, that also introduce talking points in particular ways that exploit aspects of, of political legitimacy shared among a wide base of the population, right? So concerns about immigration and legality of the law and order society, right, at the time are, are things that 
people who would not consider themselves racist would find appealing. And he was very adept at that. And then in another example, shortly after this, I want to say this was in 1976, there was a branch or a, a cell, I guess you would say a clavern of Klan members at Camp Pendleton, the military base. And Metzger was chosen to be the spokesman for these guys. And incidentally, the media fervor around the discovery of this Klan group that actually came out because of a huge fight with some Black Marines, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that came into a room thinking that it was the the Klan cells room. And it it was not, in fact, but there was a, a giant fight. And as a result, the military took so much heat, they ended up launching one of, if not the very first investigations of racial extremism within the military. Metzger was the spokesperson for that. And he gave many, many press conferences and he talked about the fact that, you know, Black Marines are are talking about Black power and civil rights and so on and so forth, right? So why is it that the the white Marines can't talk about white racial pride and, and equal rights and civil rights for the white man? This is another talking point that Metzger introduced very early and framed in such a way that it was legible and comprehensible to a broad segment of the population that would not consider themselves racist, but has gone on to be a fundamental aspect that draws recruits to the white power movement today. That is wild. (laughs) I'm sorry. That is. Oh, it's totally wild. As you're talking, like, it's just like so much of what you're saying can just be drawn to today. Like, Oh yeah. It's an absolutely direct line. I mean, I can talk about that in a minute, but yeah, completely. Yeah. So, I mean, but Metzger seems to be, at least please correct me if I'm wrong, when compared to Mason and Beam, he's one of the few people who can kind of translate his image and his influence to democratic success. Cause I keep thinking like, like I keep thinking that he, he won a prim- a democratic primary in Southern California. He did. And, he did. And, and it's, it's kind of mind blowing to me that he's able to create a political base that is, or create enough influence to where he wins. <laughs> it's just like, well, I hold on. I wouldn't go that far because okay. again, like the thing to keep in mind with Metzger is use what works, right? He ran for political office at several different points within his, his you know, 50-year career in the white power movement. He did win a Democratic primary in Southern California. What I can tell you was, was one of the super interesting things about this is that the California Democratic Party was so up in arms about it that they endorsed the Republican and went to war basically for the Republican challenger and he ultimately he lost. He ran for a couple other seats subsequently and ended up being a miserable failure. And some academics and analysts attribute the failures that Metzger had at these subsequent electoral campaigns as being the reason that he embraced a revolutionary approach to the state later on. Because again, like if you look at the time period, around 1983 is when he launches the white Aryan resistance and abandons the 1982-1980 period of like white electoral pro-white politician bullshit. But he doesn't necessarily abandon electoral politics. He, when he moved back to Indiana, Warsaw, Indiana, later in his life before coming back to California, he actually ran again for political office there. And this is the the mistake that I think a lot of 
um, observers of the movement make, especially about Metzger, you know, it, him running for office didn't necessarily mean he thought he would win or even wanted to win. It was an angle, right? It inflamed people. It got him media attention. You know, there's no way in hell that Metzger ever would have been interested in actually ruling given his personality. He wasn't that sort of figure, but it was a means to an end and a means to several different ends, right? He did support white supremacist candidates or white white supremacist candidates. I should be careful with that. People that were pro-white in particular ways, above board, I guess you could say with more insidious connections below board. There are several cases in California. You know, if you Google this, you can find them relatively quickly and I don't want to get too caught up in them. But, you know, he also used this stuff to push other mainstream candidates further to the right and embarrass them on um, their own, what he saw as hypocrisy. So when Pat Buchanan ran um, for president, Metzger showed up at the border with video cameras and basically was badgering him about just being full of shit on immigration, which is another interesting thing about Metzger. He, he was really funny and I don't, I definitely don't like the guy at all. Don't agree with anything that he said, but he was affable and charismatic in a way that many, many movement leaders never were. And he used that to great advantage. And oh yeah, another thing that I wanted to say is Metzger is one of the pioneers of of stuff that you see the Boogaloo Boys doing now in terms of allying with groups to which they're antithetically, you know, ideologically inclined. Metzger was the keynote speaker at a 1993 new Black Panther Party event. And there's a really chilling video of that particular speech because, you know, he's essentially speaking about separatist policy that were it ever achieved would eventually lead to the annihilation of the other group. And this gets brought up and he and the new Black Panther Party leader at the time that, that introduced him started laughing and said, well, we're, we're going to worry about it then, right? So these alliances with ideologically opposed movements that are nonetheless tactically working in parallel is another thing that, that Metzger was very good at. And he was good at moderating his language and his approach and his gregariousness and affability to get a desired end. And I might also add that in 1993, as this is happening, this is right after Metzger had planned to catalyze the race war with the LA riots by sending in skinheads in SWAT gear in black vans that looked like government vans to basically massacre people in black neighborhoods on camera and have it in the media so that it would incite revenge cycles of violence. And in a way, Metzger was very much like, like Zarqawi in Iraq, you know, shifting an insurgency into a civil war by inciting, you know, cycles of revenge conflict. So that's another element here to him. And I think it's a mistake to, to look at, you know, just his electoral dabbling as uh, the ends itself instead of the means to a set of ends for him, which were multiple. I will say that that what came out primarily of his, his dabbling in, in the political process in that particular way is a slogan that anyone that's followed Adam Waffen will recognize, white revolution is the only solution and voting will not remove them. So you see a lot of Metzger's slogans from back then appear in Adam Waffen propaganda today. And it's not accidental. It's not coincidental at all. These, these guys are consuming Metzger. 
you know, I mean, I have plenty of proof of that. There is a direct line from him to the younger generation of, of white supremacists today. So then is it accurate to describe Metzger as an accelerationist, as somebody who is, you know, I know this is a simple definition and I'm probably going to get shit for it, but it's kind of just nudging and, and pushing for the end and kind of, you know, rediscovering, rebuilding society in a white supremacist image or? It's really funny that you say that because another one of Metzger's slogans was worse is better. So at a certain point, yeah, he was very accelerationist in his views. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's difficult to, to characterize him as, you know, a specific type of accelerationist in terms of like the ideological theorizing that goes on right in, in those circles today, but Metzger said it many, many times worse is better. You know, he saw the, he saw incitement of the collapse of the system as basically the, the ash on which you would build your new order. So, yeah, I mean, I think he fits that, that definition quite well, but at a certain point for sure. So then I'm kind of curious, like he, what would, how would you describe his overall political program then? Is it, did he really have like a, a kind of political ideology or political end in mind? Or was it just, you know, you just keep pushing this line of white supremacy and you kind of see where it goes? Well, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, Metzger in, in many ways in different times described himself as, as like a third positionist. It's inaccurate to call Metzger a right winger. He wasn't a right wing. He hated the Republican Party with a, with a passion. You know, again, like race is my religion is something that he would always say. He was anti-capitalist. He was anti-oligarchs and pro-white everything. So basically his program was getting rid of, of what he saw as a, an, a group of elite gatekeepers, right? And having a, a white racial revolution that would institute this new order. Now, as far as like the specific specificities of how that would operate, like many people in the movement, he really didn't get too into the weeds of, you know, governance and, and defining like how the, you know, the postal services would work in like the Aryan, you know, utopia, but he definitely had that that vision in mind, yeah. So I want to kind of switch and kind of begin to focus on, on something that you've laid out. You've already mentioned it, but something that's called the infiltration strategy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm kind of curious, just can you first define that for us before we kind of explore? Because like I had always like kind of assumed that law enforcement and the military would always kind of be a target for white supremacists. Yeah. But I, I had never realized or I had never put it together that there was an actual strategy, a direction and a kind of, yeah. uh, you know, a purpose to it. So if, if you could walk us through it, what is the infiltration strategy? Sure, um, I'd be happy to. I mean, it's, it's interesting because Metzger is not the only white supremacist to have advocated infiltrating security services. And what I mean by that is placing operatives within the armed forces, within the, the police, that would basically have a covert sort of method of operation until either the shit hit the fan or in ways that they could enact, you know, white power actions without being caught. So that's something that that Pierce, you know, William Pierce of the National Alliance talked about too, 
However, nobody took it to the degree that Metzger did. He actually had a name for it. He called it Operation Appleseed. He would refer to himself as Johnny Appleseed. This isn't a phrase that I've heard people outside the movement, by the way, use, but it's something that Metzger himself did use quite often. And, you know, some people that, that are academics and experts on the movement are familiar with it. Like Pete, Pete Simi, who's written a lot about the skinhead movement and, you know, the Aryan identity mobilization of safe spaces now, you know, he, like he, uh, Pete Simi would absolutely know what I was referring to because it's a term that gets used in movement circles. But so one really interesting thing, I think, to, to lay out before anything else when talking about infiltration is that from the work that I've done, I see this starting as starting in Metzger's mind about 1975, 1976 with the Camp Pendleton Marine situation in the Klan, as well as the, the Klan Border Patrol. But at that point, I don't think that it was an organized sort of, an organized strategic platform that was invested in very heavily. And the reason that I say that is that there are two seminal moments in movement history that really call for a shift to more covert organizational strategy. But right before I get into those two key movements, one thing that I wanna say is I get a lot of pushback when I talk about infiltration from the right and the left. And on the right, you know, it's what you would guess that you're defaming patriotic people that want to support the country, blah, blah, blah. Now on the left, people often say, well, you know, the origin of policing as we know it came from slave patrols. Absolutely true, right? Policing in general is filled with white supremacist sentiment. Also very, very true. However, one thing that we have to acknowledge is the fact that the civil rights movement led to a shift and the birth sort of of the contemporary white supremacist movement. And that is to say that no longer were public, public affiliations with racist groups tolerated, they, they incurred cost for people. And at that point, you started to have people committed to a racist program become more covert in terms of their, their operational capacity. So, you know, that's just something before I tell you about the, the two seminal movements, movement moments that are watersheds for making infiltration and Operation Appleseed much more programmatic. The first of these move, uh, moments is um, when the Order, the group that I had mentioned, formed in 1983, who had gone on killing sprees and uh, bank robbery heists in the Pacific Northwest. After the end of the Order, there was a, something called the, the Fort Smith Seditious Conspiracy Trial against several members of the broader movement, not just guys in the Order, but also Lewis Beam was involved in this. Um, and several other figures, because the order was giving money that they stole in these robberies to organizations in the white power movement to fund their operations. So you had tons of people indicted for this seditious conspiracy. The government case was trash, honestly. It was very poorly thought out, uh, very, very poorly litigated, and pretty much everybody got acquitted. And so on the one hand, you might look at that and think, well, this is a victory for the, the movement. But the movement lesson was the heats on us, right? The government's trying to do whatever they can, even drumming up bullshit charges that they can never prove to take us down. And so as a result, you had a shift towards a much more clandestine mode of operation, right? Which goes well naturally with something like infiltration. Metzger wasn't um, named in the indictment, but he did allegedly receive about $250,000 of the stolen money. And he was very tight with almost all of these guys that were on trial. So he was very much involved. I mean, one of the first FBI affidavits about the order names Metzger as a member, and he was a participant in 1983 
in this cross burning in Cagle Canyon in LA that was um, seen as sort of like a consecration of, of this group, but that's just kind of a you know trivia fact. The second big watershed moment for infiltration's programmatic embrace is uh, 1990 over the course of this lawsuit about the Seurat murder in Portland, Oregon. And essentially, although Metzger's objective partially in leaving the KKK was to get rid of membership organizations that would be easy to penetrate and break up from security services. So he set up war to not have membership cards and not have lists, right? The civil suit found him vicariously liable for actions undertaken by associates to further the objectives of that corporate organization or broader organization. So basically now Metzger can't claim at this point to have like a, like a, a group like war, even if it's not quote unquote a membership. And one of the very telling things at this point in time, right after the 1990 case is that Metzger, as he was, you know, very want to do, held a press conference after the verdict and reporters said, you know, aren't you shattered and, and, and depressed about this verdict? And he said, hell no, why would I be? What are you going to do now? I'm going to go celebrate. And they, they said, why celebrate? And he said that the movement exists, that the movement is strong. And people said, well, you just lost, you know, you're liable for $12 million over this murder. So how the hell are you going to celebrate? And Metzger laughed. And, you know, I hear this echo all the time. He laughed and he said, don't you get it? We're in too deep. We are on your school boards. We are in your police. We're in your military. We're in, you know, the halls of your political offices. Where do you think all the skinheads went? The seeds have been planted. And, you know, we could write that off as Metzger being bombastic and trying to, to flip a win out of a loss, which is something that he was quite good at rhetorically. But when you examine the trajectory of his output across 50 years, you know, someone whose who's primary, you know, axiom in life of, of use what works is not going to be spouting bullshit like that unless it's having an impact. I mean, let's be honest, I, I have I have archives of email only, like listserv emails that were subscription only for War Associates. And in 2004, he was advertising jobs that were available at INS and Border Patrol and saying one of our associates within the movement says they want patriots apply, you know, and in 2004, this is the same argument that he's talking about in a legal affidavit in a court case in 1976 related to the Klan Border Patrol. And he keeps up this theme his entire life. So yeah, he was instrumental in pushing for infiltration at various points. And over the course of, um, you know, half century, it becomes more programmatic. I'll also tell you that you know, former skinheads um, in particular that were associated with Metzger that were close to him. I've interviewed several of them. Several of them have talked about it in their books, but Metzger would say, you know, those of you that have the criminal records that have already fucked people up and, and gone to prison for it, you know, do what you do. You find someone that's clean, send them to me i.e. directly, right? Metzger wasn't someone that did communication that left a paper trail, you know, and he would meet with them one-on-one. -on -one. So 
this is something confirmed by many, many, many ex-Metzger acolytes, all of whom had military records. And that's in Canada and beyond, you know, in the States and Canada and, and beyond. It was, it was programmatic. He even called it, again, Operation Appleseed. And one of the most striking things I think that I saw recently, I was looking at bio or eulogies and obituaries that people in the, the movement had posted about Metzger. And one was posted by an anonymous source that went by his initials that claimed to be in Southern California. And the thing that stuck out to me was he started talking about how at the end of his life, Metzger was, would get kind of befuddled about certain figures that were cropping up as movement leaders. And this friend of his who'd been with him since the beginning reminded him, you know, Tom, you, you laid the seeds for this decades ago, and now they're bearing fruit. Like after all, Johnny Appleseed, you didn't tend your orchard. You know, what you're seeing are, is the product of essentially the skins that you sent undercover, their children. So you would say that the infiltration strategy has been successful then? Well, here's the thing. I, I would say that on one hand, uh, I don't want to overinflate it because part of it, part of the utility of having a campaign like that is inflated threat projection. And you can't turn into like, if you're looking at infiltration, you don't want to be a mirror of the white supremacists that were, you know, reacting to the John Birch Society communists have infiltrated everything. So we need to temper it, I think, somewhat in terms of deeming it a success. However, on the other hand, I also want to say that, you know, the problem with looking at a covert program like this is that the only cases we know about are the fuck-ups, right? So if a covert strategy is succeeding, you're never going to know about it. You're only going to know about the failures. And we do have several failures and we do have people that have left the movement, but there are enough accounts that, yes, I absolutely believe that it's been successful, certainly without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, now in terms of conclusively pinning down Metzger to every single case, obviously that's impossible to do. But just to give you an example of like one or two here, a couple years ago, there was an Oklahoma police chief that was outed as a major, major white supremacist actor and organizer. And he'd appeared in white power documentaries. He'd been at Aryan Fest that Metzger organized, including, if I'm not mistaken, one in 2004, where Metzger got up on stage and was like, it said, infiltrate, infiltrate, infiltrate like a submarine, infiltrate your school board, infiltrate the police. Like this is something that he hammered home about, right? So a couple of years ago, police chief in Oklahoma gets busted for this. And what do they do? They transfer him to another town because he said that this was the past and he had disavowed those ties. I mean, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. It's definitely recognized as a security threat to the point where the FBI has issued internal memos about it. Now, have they been transparent? No. One in 2006 was dedicated to a phenomenon that they termed the ghost skins, which is what it sounds like, right? Skinheads that are acting like ghosts and are infiltrating law enforcement specifically for several reasons. Now, the thing that just boggles my mind about this particular memo, several things, is that Pierce of the National Alliance is mentioned as, you know, one of the movement leaders that was behind the strategy. Metzger's name is never mentioned, 
and Metzger was very vocal about this program. They do talk about a white power rock festival where something was said about it. And it's very obvious who they're talking about. So I don't know why they didn't mention it. Plus it's available in like every publication that he ever released. I mean, Jesus Christ, the guy actually had newsletters called the insurgent newsletters called the paranoid newsletter that borrowed the plagiarized ATF manuals reprinted stolen army manuals had tips for infiltrating like it was so obvious apparent in, in the public realm but so many people dismissed Metzger as like a crazy had been and a blowhard because that was part of his public persona so yeah like I would say it was successful another example I mean there's several that I want to give you that I can't give you because of investigations that are that are going on right now but suffice it to say that a lot of these skinheads that were involved in his networks and on the music scene throughout the country and internationally in the 80s and 90s uh, that didn't have criminal records have gone on to become in some cases police officers in major metropolitan areas more than that i can't really speak to because you know like obviously i don't want to give any of the games away but then i'd also point to something that's not as clearly linked to him but is pretty damn clear if you're familiar with his rhetoric have you heard of shadow moses by any chance no i haven't Okay, Shadow Moses is a white supremacist group that was busted a couple months ago. And there was a cell in Southern California, San Diego, LA, and a cell out in what's particularly interesting. Well, one of the particularly interesting things is that the guy in Georgia that was arrested is a man by the name of Cody Griggers, and he was a deputy sheriff. And as part of the, like, I'm looking at the the criminal complaint right now, basically his text messages brag about recruiting several other members of law enforcement. He would, he was manufacturing illegal weapons and carrying them in a squad car. He was militantly white supremacist working with this group on the the West coast. And he was the East coast sort of leader of the, the group. He was selling the arms that he was illegally constructing he was also engaged in selling drugs. But on top of that, what's super fascinating on several levels, because there's so much fuckery, sorry to, to be so blunt, but you know, his his text messages are are almost verbatim things that Metzger said about inciting the race war, things that Metzger said about access to law enforcement, weapons, and networks. And then, you know, on top of all of that, this guy bragged about how he would routinely arrest black men for felonies that had no grounds whatsoever, specifically to disenfranchise them of voting rights. So you can see just how problematic this kind of thing is when you look at the failures, right, that did get caught. And something I want to say related to that is it's so difficult to get law enforcement and military buy-in on on these cases and on this subject because if you take Cody Griggers alone as an example every single conviction of a black man or anyone of color that Cody Griggers was involved with needs to be examined very closely and the resources that that's going to take are you know enormous so there's not a whole lot of LEO sort of internal incentive even though there should be right especially and most of all among members of law enforcement who are the loudest to say it's a few bad apples because, you know, 
if it's a few bad apples, don't you have a vested interest in rooting out the poison? Yeah. But so that's, that's my sort of hot take on the success or failure. You know, I know several people that were in the military and were involved with Metzger and have talked about this, you know? So what, what fascinates me is kind of the FBI, the federal reaction to the FBI and DHS. It, it doesn't seem like they're as aggressive towards you know, infiltration and this kind of strategy. I mean, like, I'm reminded that in 2000, I think it was in 2009, 2010, like the DHS comes out with this report saying that oh, know, yeah. white, white supremacy is the biggest, you know, risk. Yep. Fun and fact I'm, about that, by the way. <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> the Oath Keepers leaked it and the Oath Keepers didn't exist yet. But the first place that memo leaked that white supremacists in the far right were recruiting and targeting military and law enforcement. First place it leaked was a far right talk show. The second place it leaked was on a web forum uh, of the Oath Keepers a couple weeks to a month before they officially announced their name. But yeah, uh-huh. Daryl Johnson, the DHS analyst, actually talks about this in his book and at how Basically, he's pretty damn sure that the Oath Keepers at this point had someone inside DHS because the language of the media shitstorm that followed, right, where you had like Rush Limbaugh and Michelle Malkin embracing the I am a, I'm a right wing extremist. Basically, it was mirrored by someone inside DHS that issued a critique to that memo in what was a, a marked deviation from the normal processing at DHS in that office. So yeah, oh, I'm totally familiar with this. I also just want to pop off real quick about FBI because that FBI 2006 memo about ghost was leaked. I can't remember when, I want to say 2015. And it was a redacted version of it that was leaked. In 2020, basically the summer hearings on Black Lives Matter and George Floyd's uh, murder in particular pushed a session of Congress hearings about law enforcement, white supremacy and law enforcement. And essentially a redacted copy of that 2006 memo was obtained and the FBI was invited to testify or involve themselves in the proceedings at all. And they chose to just not show up. They even tried to disclaim this particular memo. But, you know, it's it's interesting because DHS and well, DHS recently has started talking about, you know, being more proactive in terms of internally monitoring their people in the past, I want to say two months. But the, another factor that we have to keep in mind here is that there are so many law enforcement organizations in this country that the autonomy makes it extremely difficult to police, right? Whether it's like, you know, sheriffs who, by the way, the Oath Keepers target much more forcefully because of like the posse comitatus bullshit, like, you know, extremely local sort of level that they're more, that the sheriffs are perceived as being more amenable um, to this kind of ideological approach than law enforcement in other areas. That's not confined to say law enforcement in rural areas. Like, I don't know if you've heard about the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, but LASD has a, a problem with neo-Nazi gangs being run out of the sheriff's department for the past 50 years, including successful lawsuits where father and son deputies are involved in this getting executioners tattoos associated with this neo-Nazi gang. So you have so many different law enforcement organizations that don't have like an umbrella, you know, uh, accountability mechanism the way the FBI or DHS might. So that's another complicating factor here. And I think it's impossible really to 
to say that FBI or local law enforcement are taking it more or less seriously. And without going into any details, I can tell you that, you know, I've dealt with, I've dealt with police departments that were very obviously compromised. And I know that leftist comrades of mine will, will say that I failed the purity test on this, but I had a, a situation where I was forced to deal with the FBI and I told the FBI my suspicions about a local police department and they confirmed them of, yeah, this, they're loaded with sympathizers, you know, and it was basically my, my life was very much at stake and I didn't have another option, you know, but to respond to this particular query, but in any, in any, you know, any point, what I'm trying to say here is that the uh, relative autonomy of these different organizations within the security apparatus make it very complicated to, to really even follow who's doing what about taking this issue seriously. And further, you know, the fact that there is no um, disincentive or punitive measure that's taken for non-cooperation. Like, I would love to see lawmakers basically pressure an appropriations bill where if the FBI doesn't show up to testify at a law enforcement and white supremacy hearing that they lose some of their funding. You know, I don't think that's unreasonable at all because we have to have some mechanism for buy-in. And right now that's not happening, whether it's the military or the, or law enforcement, right? It's generally just a bunch of, you know, this is inconsistent with our values and we don't tolerate it. And you can look at court cases. And I've like, I've looked at this in terms of investigations of white supremacists in the, the National Guard and in the Navy 30 years apart. And it's the same damn thing. Like the founder of Adam Waffen was investigated by the National Guard and they found like, <laughs> They found a weapons cache that was roughly the same as the Boston bombers. I think they found C4 also. They found framed photos of McVeigh on his bedside table, Mein Kampf, SS paraphernalia, propaganda in a house that was like all Adam Waffen guys. And the National Guard's genius conclusion is that, quote, no reasonable person would conclude that Brandon Russell was part of an extremist organization, which is, you know, I want it to be hilarious, but it's really not. And then I looked at a case of, you know, Chuck Leak was a member of the, the California War Skins and was the San Diego president of this particular Metzger affiliated, you know, group for quite a while. He was convicted of violent crime in 88, 87, something like that. The Navy looked into him as well. And it was the same thing. Like they found all of this Nazi propaganda shit at his house. He was basically undergoing the criminal process for what would be a hate crime today. And the Navy concluded that there was nothing to worry about. So, you know, we've been hearing this rhetoric about them taking it seriously for decades and decades and decades. And it's, I have a hard time believing that any of them truly do take it seriously. Like it's more than likely like a diversity training meeting and in-service and that's about it because, you know, there's not a whole lot of incentive for the brass, I think, to really, really take this seriously. That's kind of wild to me because, like, it almost seems like the lessons of the Oklahoma City bombing for the FBI was to be more aggressive towards, I, I want to say, I guess, white supremacy and the militia movement. But what, what you're kind of saying is that, oh, you know, it's not really it's much more complicated than that. And the focus is really much more problematic, I guess. 
Well, um, yeah, because I mean, for one, look at McVeigh. Uh, McVeigh gets remembered as um, the epitome of a lone wolf, which is straight up bullshit, right? Like, but in that instance, the McVeigh legacy is looked at as like anti-government sentiment, whether or not he was a white supremacist per se is really sort of like pushed to the side, even though he did attend Klan meetings. And by the way, he owned t-shirts that were purchased from Tom Metzger's, you know, apparel initiative, but that's another story. No, like McVeigh was taken very much as the, the model lone wolf and not associated with a particular group, right? So, and also his connections to white supremacy, however tangential or not tangential they are, depending on who's talking, I think aren't really examined in the way that we would like to think that they are if that makes sense at all it kind of does i mean like i just have like it's just becoming like in our in in the show's study of this movement it's just becoming increasingly clear that the idea of a lone wolf it doesn't exist right it's a can i can i spout off about that i'm sorry oh go ahead (laughs) Okay, this is one of my biggest problems with the public understanding of what the hell this thing called the movement is, right? People often talk about how, you know, there's there's not an organized racist movement in the States and, you know, that ended with the Klan and whatever. Bullshit on so many levels. But in particular, the idea of the lone wolf, right, is mostly associated with Metzger. The idea of leaderless resistance, contrary to what like the 9-11 happened and I want to work on jihadis because I'm low-key and Islamophobic, but whatever, right? Leaderless resistance is not a Muslim concept. Lewis Beam first wrote about leaderless resistance. And by the way, this is another thing that just drives me crazy about white supremacist experts. Lewis Beam did not write leaderless resistance after Waco and Ruby Ridge in 93. He wrote it in 1983. He updated it 10 years later. So these ideas are percolating throughout the movement at the same time as these guys are using early online technology, you know, and all of all of these different sort of I, precocious isn't really the word, I guess, but, you know, definitely like farsighted aspects. The, the existence of lone wolves and the existence of leaderless resistance are themselves strategies developed within and for a broader movement, right? So it it infuriates me, the cases that I read about of, you know, a military service person say that's caught, you know, organized doing some white supremacist shit basically that gets written off as a lone wolf. Well, I mean, a lone wolf doesn't mean he's not necessarily affiliated with the broader movement that came up with the strategy in the first place 20, 30 years ago. And an excellent example of this, I think is, if you recall, Fraser Miller or Glenn Fraser Miller, who shot up, I think he did the synagogue shooting in like 2012, if I'm not mistaken. People always talk about, you know, Fraser Miller as a lone wolf. Well, that's really funny because he actually was on witness protection for testifying against the order in that trial that I mentioned earlier for seditious conspiracy. And before that, he founded the White, White Patriots Party in one of the Carolinas. He was involved in the Greensboro massacre. He was a hugely important clan leader and could not have been further from a lone wolf, right? but he gets, he gets configured that way. Also Wade Michael Page, who shot up the, the sick Gurdwara in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, who incidentally, Metzger Association there, Wade Michael Page was a military vet. He had ties to Southern California. He played in a white supremacist skinhead uh, band. 
that happened to play at Metzger's invitation at several Aryan Fests. And he also produced a song that was one of Metzger's favorites, so much so that it was the banner um, song on Metzger's Resist website for quite some time. So, you know, again, like how much of a lone wolf are you going to call this guy when he was hugely active in the key central networks and in contact with the biggest movement leadership, you know, people forget that lone wolf and leaderless resistance are not just uh, names sort of uh, invented after the fact to characterize a phenomenon. No, absolutely the reverse. They are names that were adopted with strategies disseminated by a broader movement to help ensure that movement's continuing success in the future through plausible deniability, precisely through tactics and strategies like leaderless resistance and lone wolf. That kind of leads to my sort of next question. And it's more abstract, but I kind of want to ask it. And in the sense that I almost get a feeling that Metzger was kind of moving moving things from organizations from like neo-nazis the clan to more to more of a ecosystem milieu a network a more network design i don't yeah like i, I don't know what the word is I'm, I'm still an amateur in this space but oh i think no. I'm, yes we all are <laughs> but when we think about his legacy i mean yeah. is, is it fair to kind of put that at the center of it you know this movement away from organizations and more into a networked kind of milieu design of of political influence? I think that's an interesting question. And I can't really say that sold on on a yes, no, because I really haven't, I haven't thought about it a lot. What I what I do think is that my first inclination with characterizing Metzger's legacy is that it's so huge and so unexamined, really, by frankly, a lot of us who should know better, that it's it's difficult to point to like one thing that he did and assign him, you know, like this is where his legacy and intervention really was. Also related to that, I think that, you know, Metzger picked up very early on the problems for a, a social movement that often engaged in illegal activity and, you know, violence like the the clan, why it sucked for them to have membership roles and why it sucked to have like written minutes, right? So he was instrumental in attempting at first to move away from a membership model organization when he started war. That didn't work when SVLC sued him, right? Because he was still found vicariously liable. Where I think that what you're suggesting makes a lot of sense in terms of the network imprint is that I think Metzger started operating behind the scenes among networks that he had cultivated, like with Lewis Beam and these other guys, right? And Mason, but not not necessarily being out front. I wouldn't call that like detached from a network or devoid of organizational proximity um, because he absolutely was in organizational proximity to a lot of these groups, even Adam Waffen, which is, a, I hesitate to say fun, but it is a really fun, interesting story. So I think that Metzger was a this power broker behind the scenes with organizations that were up and coming at the same time, you know, he was advocating for lone wolf resistance and, you know, moving his influence in a more amorphous sort of a nebulous space. I definitely think that he hooked people up and hooked people into different scenes. Like he had built channels of um, transnational exchange. Well, a huge one was with Sweden, right? So 
I think he was instrumental in, in doing setups for different organizations behind the scenes. One of the reasons that, you know, I say that is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of contact between Metzger and Adam Waffen that has not come to light, but that absolutely exists where, you know, I mean, Adam Waffen, it was an organization. Now what Adam Waffen sympathizers and Adam Waffen members will claim about the murders that have been committed and attributed to them is that they weren't done by the organization in organizational aims, right? They were members that were popping off and like, you know, the murder of Blaze Bernstein, right? By allegedly by Sam Woodward, who hasn't, you know, pled officially yet, I don't think. But that was a crime an Adam Waffen member committed, not necessarily for Adam Waffen. You've got a lot of those really weird coincidences with this group in particular. But like the guys that founded Adam Waffen were in direct contact with Metzger before they managed to track down Mason, you know, Rape Denton, who took over for Brandon Russell when Russell was um, incarcerated. I mean, he just got out a month and a half ago. But when John Cameron, aka Rape Denton, took over, well, Denton has talked in messages that, you know, you can get if you know where to get them. Denton bragged about having Metzger sign a copy of Siege by James Mason for him in 2004, which would put Denton at like 12 or 13. Whether or not that's a bullshit claim is subject to debate, right? You know, assume that it it wasn't. That means that there's been direct contact with a lot of the younger leaders for quite some time. Now assume the claim is crap. Well, it still shows you the importance of Tom Metzger as a particularly integral figure in the lineage of white supremacist trajectories into the present. And if you go on to the leaks of like discords, if you go on to the leaks of like Iron March, one of the things that you find is even Alexander Slavros, who founded Iron March, he was talking about Metzger and infiltration in 2012. Like this is a consistent thread on the same forum that ended up giving birth to groups like AWD that was instrumental in people going to fight for the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. You know, Nordic resistance movement has been tied to the same circles. So you've got his ideas percolating debate, being debated, as well as him directly in contact with these guys. And I might also add that one of the last communications that Adam Woff, formerly Adam Waffen Division, now National Socialist Order, one of the very last public communiques that they released was on Telegram. And in it, they uh, talked about how Metzger told us after Charlottesville not to do this stupid street activism, right? And also Adam Waffen early propaganda videos for what it's worth, tons of them feature Tom Metzger voiceovers, you know? So he has been influential on even these new groups and indirect contact, how much we don't know, for a very long time. So at the same time, as I would say, he himself was not fronting an organization. He definitely had contact with organizations and was behind the scenes pulling strings and basically using channels to connect other people. Because again, for Tom Metzger, use what works. <laughs> That's wild. And I think like, you know, the idea of use what works, like that reminds yeah. me of like, there's a, like that, that, that term kind of conveys such an ideological an influential kind of flexibility like exactly his pragmatism was really his brilliance you know absolutely and then like if, if pragmatism is his brilliance one of, them, yeah. one, one of them do you see that like being inherited by some of these newer groups that are influenced by Metzger or do you see 
these kind of newer groups that are influenced by Metzger kind of being much more ideologically rigid? Well, for one, I, I would say that Metzger was pretty ideologically rigid. You know, race is my religion was his tagline, right? In terms of his ideological bent, I don't think that he was flexible in that respect. Tactics and strategies and different mechanisms to achieve his ideological goals, that's a different subject, right? Now, I don't really know how to fully weigh in on that as far as a comparative, just because yeah, I mean, I'll be frank, right? Like I'm, I'm writing a book on Metzger in particular, Metzger specifically the infiltration program. So like I have consumed so much of this man's thinking that it's hard for me to, it, it would be arrogant and, and presumptuous for me to hazard like a comparative for any leader that we have now, because I don't have that level insight and access into, you know, their operations, nor do they have a trajectory of 50 years. So I would say it would take quite a while to see the development from what I have seen of like the alt-right leaders and like, you know, Nazaro and the base, I, I don't see the same pragmatism and I don't see the same, I mean, just take Nazaro, for example, he, hi, if you're listening, Rome, you don't have the charisma of Tom Metzger. I'm sorry to tell you, your videos are profoundly boring and your jokes are awful. But so, you know, depending on which of these movement leaders you're talking about, they do lack attributes of his in the constellation that made Metzger who he was. And again, part of this is the difficulty of not being able to see behind the curtain and the lack of longevity that a lot of these guys um, have. I do think that some of the newer actors on this the scene are incredibly smart. And again, I don't use brilliant as a laudatory term because I don't really necessarily think it's inherently positive. You, you can be Machiavellian evil brilliant, but I think it's too soon to tell. I do definitely think that it one would be hard pressed to find an equal to who Metzger was and what legacy he had and the way in which in particular his complete comfort with being written off as a buffoon um, furthered his ability to covertly influence situations. I don't think that, that there are many equals in the white supremacist movement in particular because of the way that ego operates with a lot of these guys. Um, but it's too soon to really tell and I would be full of crap if I tried. It's interesting because you, you're almost you've touched on the idea that he's not reproducible, right? There's like a kind of reproducibility issue of not modernizing Metzger. I guess he died in 2020, so that's not really the accurate term, but yeah, kind I mean, of... His influence is definitely still there. I, I don't think that... I mean, when I talk about the the lack of irreparable, you know, basically it's it's kind of like, I don't know why I'm going into like theory here. This is weird, but like, it's not like Walter Benjamin or a type of situation, right? With, with mechanical reproduction. The thing is he was so instrumental in several of the foundational pieces that coalesced to create the movement that these actors are now operating within, that that's really why I have um, a tough time trying to gauge like, you know, what would another Metzger look like? Because they would have to predict things and innovate in ways that none of us can conceptualize at present, if that makes sense. No, that makes absolute, like, that's, makes absolute sense. Like, he's just so influential that it's, it's hard to tell where his influence begins and ends. It, oh, it, yeah, for sure. 
for sure. That's I absolutely would say that. Yeah. So I think we, we we've been talking for about an hour and a half, and I think we we've highlighted a lot of good things, or not good things, but interesting <laughs> things. No, I totally um, understand. Trust me, I totally understand. So usually, the question that we end the show with is kind of like a free form. So okay. leave us with something the audience to think about, to chew on, to to kind of you know, to, to think about. So, you know, give us a, either a question, an idea, whatever you think the audience would find useful as a takeaway or something to really kind of perseverate on and think about. Okay. Well, God, this reminds you, I don't know if you or any of your listeners like watch Jesus and Meryl, but I feel like this is my, my rainbow moment. Google it. If you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I, I do. <laughs> okay. Like I'm just thinking of the Vic Mensa one where he's like DJ academics is a bitch. Although that's not appropriate to this particular conversation. So my rainbow in this instance, would basically be something disturbing, surprise, surprise, where I would urge listeners to think about the fact that, you know, there is a tendency, especially if you despise what these movements stand for, to kind of engage in a defensive protection. And what I mean by that is you you want to write these guys off as very different from you, right? So like it, you feel like you would be tarred by association if you were to say like, yeah, Metzger was funny as hell sometimes you know, he was witty, he was smart, you know, like he wasn't, it basically, when you look at these figures as one dimensional and as buffoons, some of them absolutely are, but oftentimes the desire to see them as so different from yourself and so devoid of um, agency and intelligence makes you underestimate them. I've written a lot about this on ISIS, you know, and and the idea that these are just like violent, barbarian, whatever stereotypical words people want to use, that they're irrational actors. When you don't make the effort to understand your enemy, you underestimate your enemy and you don't see them coming. And sometimes that can have ramifications that echo into the future by more than half a century. So I think the biggest thing to leave people with would be, when you write off the rhetoric of someone that you find extreme as being ridiculous or you know doomed to failure, you need to take seriously the possibility that you haven't examined all of the motivations and all of the purposes that they could be working toward. And that includes manipulating you into writing them off. Awesome, that's really insightful. That was Amanda Rogers. She's probably one of the lead thinkers on, on Metzger's legacy in life. I will have a couple links up with the show. Amanda, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. Of course. Thank you.